If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Alon Block, co-founder and CEO of KHealth, a digital healthcare platform that offers free data-driven personalized healthcare information and 24-7 access to world-class doctors. Alon co-founded KHealth in 2016 and has scaled the platform to cover over 300 million people. KHealth is frequently the number one downloaded app in the App Store's medical category. Prior to KHealth, Alon was co-CEO of Wix, the world's most accessible website publishing platform, which went public in 2013. He was also the co-founder and CEO of Vroom, a leading online car retailer here in the United States. Alon holds an MBA from Columbia Business School. And with that, let's welcome serial entrepreneur, Alon. Hi, Alon. Welcome to have you. Alexa, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great honor. Let's start with what is K-Health in your own words and talk us through the origin story. The best way to describe K-Health is access to high quality medicine at scale. That's what we're trying to build. That's our mission. And that's what we focus on. Um, and then, of course, behind each of these words, access, high quality medicine and scale is a whole tone. There's a whole world that we're focused on. There's a personal story behind K-Health. Can you just tell us where did the idea come from? What was the aha moment? And again, you've started many successful companies before. What was the why behind this one? K was a little bit different than my previous companies in that had a lot of interest in medicine and healthcare, but was not a healthcare executive or a doctor for that matter. So I was a consumer, just like a patient, just like anybody else. When I connected with Adam Singalda and Ron Shaw and Israel Roth and, and Neil Brown, who became my founding team, um, already harbored a lot of thoughts about medicine and healthcare. And again, I, I consider healthcare as the business of medicine, so that's how I refer to it. And I was always puzzled by how it's structured and how it works and felt to me very lowest common denominator in many respects, despite the amazing advances in medicine and devices and drugs. And I, I was always disappointed with the experience and with a lot of the approach of, of healthcare. But I always was more focused on medicine in that I saw firsthand consequences of mistakes or inadvertent mistakes that happened around diagnosis or treatment that had you know monumental impacts on, on people that were close to me. So I think you live your life long enough and you know there's a point in life when you're 20 or 25 and you think you're young and healthy and you're always going to be young and healthy um, and then your parents age and your age and you, you start seeing things that happen. And specifically for me, it was my dad. My dad had AFib, which I didn't know anything about. AFib for me was just this arrhythmia of the heart. I didn't know it could lead to strokes. I knew my dad was taking medication and he was 
responsible and adherent, but I didn't know the medication he was taking was Coumadin. I didn't know it could fail based on different types of food. But what happened was he was taking Coumadin and the medication failed and he, he, he had a stroke, a really bad stroke that he survived, but uh, you know, it altered his life. He needed to stop working. He needed to um, deal with speech impediments and um, it completely changed his life. Um, and when I listened to doctors after the stroke and listened to the reasoning on the medication and the approach, I was really disappointed. Uh, there were too many decisions that were made by healthcare executives that I think should have been in the hands of patients. There were too many trade-offs around money and health that didn't make sense to me. And it felt arbitrary and not rigorous enough in terms of data. So you have all these really smart physicians, but then when it came to decision-making, it didn't feel personalized, even in complicated things like uh, avoiding a stroke or, or managing stroke. And so that piqued my interest and my desire to think, okay, why is it working this way? Clearly, medicine is very important. Clearly, it's complicated. Nobody's saying it's easy. And so that's how we started. We started thinking through information. We focused entirely on information, not on the business of healthcare, but what is medical information and how can we teach a machine the language of medicine so that we can get to the point that consumers can really understand their health. That, that was our starting point. Very different from where we ended up being today, but that's, that's how we started thinking about this in 2016. Can you help, Alon, for everybody out there listening, if I'm a patient of K-Health, can you walk me through what my experience is today? What does it look like? What's the customer experience? To be clear, from a consumer perspective, you come in and you can download the K-Health app or you can, you can use it on the web, but K-Health is a 24-7 information and telehealth services. It means you can come and use us for urgent care issues. My head hurts, my stomach hurts, I've got a rash, I'm afraid I've got COVID, allergies, etc. Um, you can use us for chronic management and avoidance for diabetes, hypertension, thyroid, asthma, allergies, etc. And for behavioral health, depression and, and anxiety on, on the clinical side. And so we've built this large primary care capability and whether people are coming in for simple uh, things and just want information, whether people want uh, to deal with ongoing matters that are acute, say uh, sinusitis or conjectivitis, or whether people have polychronic, multiple uh, chronic conditions and urgent care conditions and, and need to manage them. So we, we manage from the very simple stuff to people that have complex background diseases. We have chronic, we have acute, so it's, it's a broad-based system. We work in the 48 continental states, and we work 24-7. And from a consumer perspective, when you come in, we have a price point that's significantly lower than alternatives. It's about 70% cheaper. We don't take insurance, and it's easy, easy to use and easy to interact, and you can use it one time for urgent care as, or as an ongoing member for behavioral health or, or primary care. We also have a mail-order pharmacy uh, for chronic medications. We also have other partners, and we offer the same uh, medical service and the same medical information layer, but then it comes through insurance, and then the price pricing might be different, copay, et cetera. Healthcare is not an easy industry to scale in. Can you pay it forward to every entrepreneur listening? What were your biggest lessons about go-to-market? How have you prioritized building a consumer brand versus building partnerships with payers? How have you thought about those two things? 
So first of all, 48 states, we're not in Alaska and Hawaii. So we're in the 48 continental states. Bear in mind that what we needed to do first is build an information layer to prove to ourselves that we can build an intelligent system to engage with patients and prospective patients and be able to collect very detailed symptoms and medical history. So we built this AI layer that can engage with patients. And this was even before we built our own EMR and built our own uh, KMD, our own medical services. That happened later because we realized people not only needed to know if their headache is sinusitis or migraine or COVID or maybe something else, but they also wanted to resolve it. But first, and it's really important to remember when, you, when you're starting a company, there is a tendency to try and focus on everybody. Healthcare is a huge industry. It's $4 trillion. 100% of the population needs it. And if you're going to focus on everybody and everything, you'll do nothing. So we started with urgent care and we started with the consumer because we wanted to prove ourselves we can build an intelligent AI-driven clinical platform. We wanted to build clinical operations, which, by the way, not trivial to build because you need to have doctors. We need to have different skills. We need to adhere to telemedicine laws. And we need to build an EMR. So all these things take time. And we wanted to scale this to thousands of patients a day and prove that we can build a system that, you know, can learn, learn from data. So we started directly from consumers and we started with stuff that you can do remote, which is information. It's uh, mail order uh, prescription, of course, prescriptions into pharmacies where people can go and pick up acute prescriptions. And I would add labs to that because those are kind of, you know, there's a national footprint. And over 90%, actually 92% of the time, we can resolve things on, online. That means we don't, need to, we don't need to send you to another doctor. However, 8% of the time we send people, sometimes people need to be seen in person for various reasons. Um, sometimes they need referral to specialty care or in-person primary care or the ER. That's where you need a, a local network, right? So if you're sending somebody to do a procedure and they're in Denver or in Phoenix, well, you need to send them locally. And that's where healthcare gets really, really complicated because we have a very close partnership with Anthem Blue Cross, which is, is called Elevance now. We also work with uh, United, but we don't work with all insurance companies. So we can't refer every patient in every place to the best place to get an x-ray at the best price, book an appointment. That's where healthcare gets dramatically more complicated, even if it's just five or 10% of the visits. So then we started thinking, okay, about that geographical footprint and how we refer people in different areas. That's things we're working on right now. But we started online. We started with urgent care, expanded it to chronic care, added labs, mail order, pharmacy, and kind of the basics. It's not that basic, but building that footprint. And then started thinking quite carefully about how we can provide superior connections in, in local geographies. In 2016, you were really ahead of your time with the vision to bring AI into healthcare. Can you give us a sense of like where that idea came from and tell us a little bit of how you've been leveraging AI since 2016? K-Health is the first company, all my companies have always had a lot of technology in them, but it's the first company that from the outset, we wanted to build data-driven models, whether they're machine learning models or sophisticated protocols. And across the board, medicines suffers from a limited way to provide both patients and doctors, you know, that kind of information. I, I would just say in 2016, when we started, Watson was all the rage. They, they read ads that said, where are the AI doctor? And everybody, when I fundraised and spoke to journalists, et cetera, that asked me about Watson. I was like, 
I don't know what it is. It's an ad. I don't know what the, the underlying product is. But the reality is that promise didn't fulfill itself, to say it mildly. The reality is the ability to build a neural network, to build whether it's a supervised or unsupervised way to uh, have data and to engage with patients and with doctors, that's something that I haven't seen anybody do in primary care. I've seen people do it in imaging and radiology, but I haven't seen anybody do it in primary care. And for me, the essence of AI is the ability to build machine intelligence, the ability to add to doctors' intelligence, to give doctors AI superpowers, to give patients uh, very clear information so they can make better decisions. There is a single point of failure. It's called a random average patient talking to an average doctor in a room. And then there's a summary that goes into a claim and billing system so you can figure out who pays who for what, and you can send a prescription or a lab or a referral. That's a very um, quaint system. It's, it's very 1950s. It hasn't, it hasn't upgraded. From the outset, we said we wanted to build an intelligent system that engages with both the patient and the doctor. If you look at, at doctors, they're, they have, they're littered with decision support systems that are complicated, hard to use, and sometimes not that great. So they have all these systems, many of them they don't use and they're not helpful to them. So we wanted to be there directly in the point of interaction, capturing information from patients. So if they can make the decision in a, in a high confidence and quality, in a high quality manner, they can. One of the fascinating things that happened to your business during COVID was K-Health users grew by a thousand plus percent. Can you give us a sense of what was the biggest surprise? What was the thing, like you saw the acceleration, but was there anything that surprised you during that window? To me, it was just a really, really big responsibility. It didn't surprise me in that regard, but I felt like there was a lot of willingness for people to do it. People who have a banking app and do their stuff online were also really, really happy to engage with connecting to, to information, medical information and a doctor online. The other thing I'll say is until you don't build actually a large provider group, which, which we have, and and deal directly in medicine and in healthcare, you don't realize how difficult it is for large swaths of the population. A lot of people cannot afford medicine. And it's not the uninsured, which is a separate problem. It's the people on high deductibles. For many people, it's just very expensive. Many people don't manage their diabetes or hypertension well. They manage it through a series of refills. They not they have access to doctors, but it's expensive, it's costly, it's difficult to get in front of the doctor, and they're managing themselves through a series of refills as opposed to adhering to labs and proper medical advice and, and medical information. A lot of people have primary care doctors, but they can't book an appointment. It takes them a month to see a doctor. So you have all these access issues going on. I will say, just piggybacking on your question, a lot of times in the beginning, people said, yeah, but you're going to make it really easy for people to see doctors. That's going to add cost to the system because that, that's, a, that's kind of this myopic view. Every time you go to a doctor, it costs a lot of money. So first of all, we charge much less. But B, if you're fixing the problem at 10 p.m., you're avoiding the ER or you're avoiding this diabetic complication or you're avoiding the pneumonia, you're avoiding all these things. So we always, I was always puzzled by, okay, why is it so complicated to see a doctor? Why can't you just press a button 24 seven and see a doctor? Why can I manage my stock portfolio, my crypto portfolio, whatever, 24 seven online? I can buy everything all the time online, but when it comes to my health, 
even in the middle of the day, it's tough. How do I book an appointment? How do I go to a doctor? How much does it cost? Can the doctor see me? Uh, will they be able to solve my problem? The referral now, weeks and months into a referral. I would argue most of the population struggles when it comes to taking care of their health. To fix healthcare, you need to start with the basics. You're sitting at the intersection of many trends in healthcare. What are the shifts that you see? If you have any predictions for the next decade out, what are the things that are super obvious to you that are coming that maybe the rest of us listening to this who aren't healthcare experts maybe can't see? So first of all, um, over the last 10 years, there have been a fair amount of digital health companies. Most have failed. They might still be around, but they didn't make a difference. Most companies didn't try and resolve major issues. And some of the most interesting companies are still very early in scaling. So when I look ahead at the next five to 10 years, I think there'll be a ton of innovation in care delivery. There'll be a ton more innovation in, in healthcare in general. And it'll tie to a lot of the things that are happening in medicine. Look at the improvements in oncology. Look at, at devices like Dexcom, continuous glucose monitors. There's a ton of stuff. It takes a long time for it to disseminate into you know, this $4 trillion industry. So we could sit together, Alexa, and within a couple of days, brainstorm five or 10 great ideas that each of them is probably going to be really interesting. Creating, turning a company into that is really hard, but there's so many things to do. And so it's a great time to be a healthcare entrepreneur in the U.S. What Medicare Advantage is doing around value-based care has legs and was going to become more and more important. So everybody's complaining about the cost of care. That, you know, it's just like, um, you know, the old adage about Madison Avenue, half of it is wasted. You just don't know which half. It's the same with healthcare. It's not like you're sitting in the room between a doctor and the patient and the patient should be referred or shouldn't be referred. You know, you, you don't have that ability to, to monitor and understand the quality across large health systems. And so I think there's going to be a lot more usage of technology and systems and intelligence, whether machine intelligence or human intelligence, to building better value-based care systems. The other thing is most of what happens in hospital, all of it's important. It's just too expensive to do it in the hospital. Like the, the, the cost of setting up new hospitals, the cost of managing patients in hospitals is too high. So I think there'll be very sophisticated ways to manage people remotely, even in really complex settings, which have been really tough to do. You know, the cost of a Hospital bed a day, depending on the region, is usually six or $7,000 a day. Then the third thing is, how do you give doctors AI superpowers? How do you give doctors the ability to make better decisions and to prioritize their day? That's where you know we need to shift from the 1950s. It's still a patient walks in. It's not based on priorities. It's difficult for physicians to prioritize. They often don't have enough information to make, you know, really confident, uh, smart decisions. Last big question. You said a lot of data in healthcare is not typically used for health. It's just used for billing, which is sort of a sad way to think about the current status. As you look forward, give me one thing you're, you're excited or optimistic about. First of all, most data in healthcare is used for billing and workflow. Very little of it is used for health. The fact that data exists doesn't mean that you have access to it, that it's uh, HIPAA compliant, that you can analyze it and make decisions around stuff. Uh, you know, we have a lot of our own patient data. We license Mayo Clinic's data set, but just having the data is not enough. You need to have a way to use it. And, and that's way harder than what people think. I'll give you the most basic example. Ask any primary care physician, 
when is the best time to take somebody's blood pressure? And they'll say, not at the clinic. When do they take the blood pressure for somebody who's got hypertension? At the clinic. How do they do that remotely? Well, in a very clunky way where people write it down and, you know, maybe call out. Maybe there's, there, there's a caregiver or a nurse that, you know, can interact with them. I mean, the, you know, that's as elementary as it gets. Think about all the things that matter for, for chronic patients or acute, acute things that happen remotely that are much better that happen remotely. There's no value for, for, for many of the, these, these people to walk, walk in. So now you can think completely differently about hypertension, right? If you can have people record their hypertension information and integrate it to the clinical context, not just a wearable, but a wearable that's integrated to the clinical context, it's tied to a doctor, it's tied to the medical history, it's tied to everything else that's happening in people's lives, then, then that works well. Look at all the wearables. Every, what are people saying? I want to be healthier. I want to live for longer. Exactly. And what happens with that? You go to your friend, Alexa, go to your friend, the cardiologist or internal medicine and say, hey, I want to stream my Apple Watch or Fitbit. You know, what's going to happen? They have no business model. They're going to take a step back. That's like, I need to stay away from Alexa. Uh, if they don't have a business model for it, then they don't understand what most of that means. So your pulse was a little bit higher, a little bit lower. You slept a little bit worse, a little bit better. They understand the general concepts. They understand extremes. But in a lot of these average cases, it, there's no proper understanding of what, you know, what all this means. And so that's where, to me, that will be really interesting. But you need to take a systemic view. If you're going to say, hey, I have interesting data, and I'm going to go and sell it to healthcare insurers or to hospital groups, I don't think it's going to catch. You need to provide a full-blown solution. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Alana, I want to transition a little bit to you. I want to go back. I always love to ask, was there something that your parents did when you were growing up? And I know you grew up in Israel that you in the rearview mirror, it really stands out as something that impacted the way you think or operate. They encouraged me to read. I've always been an avid reader. They encouraged my curiosity. They traveled with me to as many places as possible. And when I asked too many questions, they didn't tell me to shut up. So I think in my personality, I'm more rebellious by nature and less conformist. That means when something's working a certain way, I always annoyingly say, okay, why does it work this way? Why not that way? Isn't it obvious that things need to change or who's working on changing? What advice would, would you give to a first-time founder now knowing everything that you've learned from building three really big companies? First of all, I don't think it's just about one founder. So I think the core team, whether the core founders or the founding team, really matters. I, for one, need really strong partners that can balance me, either very great people in execution or operations who can really own that and, and, and do a fantastic job. And then also people who can think and challenge you. 
in all these settings, you, you need the right group and the right chemistry and, you know, a fair amount of luck to, you know, to put that together. Look, I started in my mid-40s in healthcare. I don't know if I would have done it earlier. You need a lot of life experience. You need a lot of business experience. You need to be able to navigate through complicated partners and regulations, et cetera. I think if you've got this, the innate personality that you believe that you can get stuff to happen and you can, and you can push for it and you can hire the right people and you can, you can break throughs, it can be done in healthcare. I do think that people still overestimate the power of an idea and underestimate the power of execution when it comes to building big companies. There's a lot of ideas out there. And, and again, in healthcare, I promise you, within a day we sat together, we'd call five great ideas that conceivably, you know, your firm would, would want to fund. Bet you need the management, you need to understand the value chain, you need the wherewithal, you need the opening to break through, you need... The, the true differentiation on the product and the offering, th those things are really tough to do. I'm going to ask you two quick fire round questions. Very quick. You could just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Um, the first is, is there a motto you live by or a quote that you love that you really think about? A lot of what I think about is MVP, what's good enough to launch. I've been known to say the enemy of good is great a few too many times. Some of the most agonizing stages in startups are around that. Is it a good enough product for people to use? Or do you need to add another thousand different bells and whistles, which will take you another two years and you'll never launch? Is there a book that you've read that has changed your life? Yeah. So I listen to books through Audible. I really like listening to history and relearning history as an adult about all these different periods um, and how all these things connect. So that makes me think through things. And there's a whole host of business uh, sort of history books that I would recommend if, if people like that. I also like learning science for people who can who can um, who can explain things, whether it's quantum mechanics or the concepts of time or consciousness, and that just makes you think in general about all, all the things you're doing. So um, I think Carlo Rivelli's, I think that's a way to pronounce his name, has a few science books which are um, fantastic. Alana, I totally lied. I'm going to ask one last question because I'd be sad if I don't ask it. You're clearly a mind who's constantly thinking about the future and who's truly an innovator. Is there any category outside of healthcare that you would just, if you had to bet a huge chunk of your life on it, what would it be? So I promised my wife I wouldn't start another company. So in a hypothetical world, <laughs> <laughs> I think there is huge opportunity to think about carbon capture in a lot of different ways. Look, I, I don't know how things will play out in, in, in the climate, but I don't think we're going to wean ourselves out of our nice houses and nice cars. And even if they're electric cars, they're still just carbon expensive. And so I think technology will be, that's where I'm optimist. Technology, I think, will be really important. And there's probably five or 10 things to do there, which will take a decade to set up that are going to matter a lot. I think nuclear reactors in energy management should be a major part of what we're doing. And hopefully some really smart people going into that. I also think of the power of, of countries that are not called, you know, America and China. Being an entrepreneur in Latin America, being an entrepreneur in Africa, there's just massive things to do. If you travel in large parts of Africa, aside from the cell phone, in many cases, the infrastructure still hasn't been fully impacted by, by the internet and by information. So there's mobile payments in many of those countries, but not enough of a change, you know, in society. So I think, and, the, and population's growing. If you look where the demographics are, they're in Africa. 
Nigeria is going to have 800 million people in 2100, even assuming a big decrease in, in their fertility. And I'm saying that because that's where all the young people are going to be. So, uh, you know, that's where I, those areas I would think about. Of course, you'd need to narrow it down and then need to find countries that you can actually work in, but, you know, have the rule of law, et cetera. But, you know, those are the things I, you know, I would be thinking about. I think it's a very exciting time. That's a wonderful place. And Alan, first of all, thank you so much for all of the incredible things you're doing for society. Um, everybody out there, uh, if you want to learn more, you can check out khealth.com and you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Alan, we're rooting for you. Thanks so much for being just such a special entrepreneurial mind. And everybody, thanks so much for listening today. Alexa, thank you so much. 